The reading today can be found on page 1152 of the Pew Bibles and is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 34. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and ill and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should not all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further instructions. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It's a real joy to be here with you uh, this morning. I, I've had a bit of uh, connection with Ashton over the years, and I know lots of people here, and, and I've had a really warm welcome from Sarah and everyone, so thank you very much. And I've got some friends sitting behind me who I sing with as well. So I'm so sorry you're going to be looking at my back for a long time, but it's better than the, this side anyway, so there we are. May I speak in the name of the living God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. One of the great Christian traditions that's been constant over the centuries, 
but has seen a great revival in recent times is pilgrimage. Uh, some of you, I'm sure, will have been on pilgrimage to the Holy Land and maybe elsewhere. When we go on pilgrimage, we pray, we reflect, we chat, we discover new places, and all the while renewing and, in, and informing our commitment to faith and to God's calling on our lives. And as we journey, we make progress. I can't claim to have walked the entire length of the Camino de Santiago, one of the great pilgrimage routes of the world that runs from France to Santiago to Compostela in northwest Spain. But I have walked the first sections that cross the Pyrenees from Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port to Pamplona. I've also walked, um, and I warn you, that first part, it's 25 kilometers uphill. Uh, so <laughs> the first day of that pilgrimage is an absolute killer. Um, I've also walked the last part down into Santiago, a much easier proposition. And the end point for this pilgrimage is the great cathedral in Santiago, where reputed relics of St. James the Apostle are kept and revered. Naturally, pilgrims will want to worship at the cathedral and services are held daily. And one of the rather bizarre features of these pilgrim masses, when the cathedral is packed with hundreds of worshippers, is something called the Botafumero. You may have heard of it. It's a giant silver incense burner. It's five foot high and weighs about 50 kilograms. And during the service, they fill it with incense and then it's hoisted by eight people and swings dramatically across the transept in the cathedral, filling the cathedral with scented smoke. It's a spectacle, but sitting there with this huge silver botafumeria sweeping over one's head is a rather bizarre experience. And you think, what's really this all, what's this all about? But there is a reason, and this is what the cathedral says. The purpose of this great censor is to symbolize the true attitude of the believer. In the same way that the smoke from the incense rises to the top of the temple's naves, so must the prayers of the pilgrims rise to reach the heart of God. And in the same manner that the aroma of the incense perfumes the entire basilica, so must Christians with their virtues and the testimony of their lives impregnate with the good scent of Christ the society that they live in. Well, we might not use those words, but surely that's our purpose as followers of Jesus and together as a church, to be an essential, beautiful and effective channel for Christ in the various communities that we belong to. So physical symbols have been a part of Christian worship from the very beginning. Baptism and Holy Communion were described by Augustine of Hippo around 400 AD as a visible sign of an inward grace that's been instituted by Jesus. In this church, I've had the joy of sitting down here uh, and being present at baptism and confirmation services. And you don't swing huge incense burners from your ceiling. But just as dramatically, 
Those being baptized descend fully clothed into the baptism pool under my feet here and are immersed in water. And baptism is so much more than getting in and out of a rather large bath. That's just the symbol. In baptism, we receive God's Holy Spirit and are born again into new life in Christ, with Christ. Not physically, not by getting wet, but spiritually. The dramatic, joyful nature of full immersion baptism draws us to understand that transformation that takes place in our lives. The new beginning that's symbolized by coming to faith and being a part of God's church. And there's a similar life-transforming dimension to Holy Communion that is directly connected to our baptism. Baptism initiates us into the communion of the body of Christ. The Eucharist is the communion into which we are baptized. We are united first by the fact that we all commune with God as we receive the, body, the bread and wine, and secondly, through our fellowship as people sharing in bread and wine together. The Eucharist binds us together as a Christian family, regardless of all our differences. If we are united with Christ through the Eucharist, then we are bound, like Christ, to love every person who receives, and together then to go out and serve our world. As Paul records in his letter around 55 AD, of which we heard a little bit, the practice of celebrating Holy Communion was established as the Christian church was born. From those very first days, disciples and followers of Jesus gathered. They're described in Acts as devoting themselves to teaching and fellowship, breaking bread and praying. And the root of this practice is recorded in the Gospels when Jesus, at the Last Supper, knew he was going to die. And so he instructed his disciples to take bread and drink in remembrance of him. So the act of celebrating Holy Communion takes us back to that very moment when Jesus broke and shared bread and passed the cup to his disciples. Our participation is timeless as we're invited by Jesus to be united with him through these acts of taking bread and wine. There's a very old joke that goes, Peter goes into a restaurant to book a table for the Last Supper, and he says, I'd like a table for 26, please. And the waiter replies, but there are only 13 of you. I know, says Peter, but we're all going to sit on one side of the table. Leonardo da Vinci's painting of the Last Supper has all the disciples on one side of the table facing the viewer. Caravaggio painted Jesus and the two disciples in his supper at Emmaus in the same way, as did Rublev 
in his famous icon of the Trinity. These paintings are painted like this on purpose. They have the impact of inviting us, the viewer, to see ourselves as part of what is taking place in the painting. We are invited to take a seat at the table. When we come forward to receive Holy Communion, we do so as disciples and followers of Jesus. And we meet him in the bread and wine, faithful to his invitation to remember him in this way. Now, there are many interpretations as to what the symbols of the bread and the wine of the Eucharist represent. Jesus' words, this is my body and this is my blood, have led Christians to debate whether the bread and wine are there to symbolize or replicate the bread and wine he offered, or whether they in some way actually become his body and his blood. Sadly, these different understandings have caused division in the church down the centuries. But ultimately, really it's our human vanity, our difficulty accepting that we can live with different theological interpretations of the Eucharist that causes this division. Which is ironic, because of all the Christian practices, the Eucharist is the one that most intently emphasizes the fact that all Christians are bound together by their shared faith in Christ. That in sharing bread and wine, as he commanded, we declare that unity to each other. For centuries, the church has sought to protect the holiness and authenticity of Holy Communion, which is why we have liturgy, set texts, to prepare us and then take us through the process of remembering Jesus. So this morning, before we get to the communion celebration, we've had a pattern of preparation. After welcome and praise, we've acknowledged that we make mistakes because we come to the table, as Paul emphasized, letting go all the things that we get wrong and all our differences. And then we are reassured by hearing words of forgiveness. We then offer up our prayers and we listen to the word of God written in the scriptures. And we reflect on those words as I'm doing now. In the creed, we declare the tenets of the Christian faith. Then immediately before the, they, we celebrate the Eucharist, we will share the peace together as a symbol of our unity, acknowledging that peace passes all understanding. These elements of our worship build us up to prepare us for sharing in the bread and the wine. The Church of England has, since its inception, sought to express the theology of the Eucharist by having what's called Eucharistic prayers. And the Church preserves the integrity and the sanctity and the sacred nature of Holy Communion by having it celebrated by an ordained minister who says the Eucharistic prayer and then consecrates the bread and the wine. You may not know, but there are currently 10 authorized Eucharistic prayers. There are eight main prayers and two that are designed specially for use when children are present. They all vary, but they all hold to the church's theological understanding of Holy Communion. They all include the words of institution that we find in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. 
And the prayers also include, either before or after these sentences, words of consecration. When we declare, when the priest celebrating declares that by the power of the Holy Spirit, the bread and the wine of the Eucharist will unite us with Jesus as we remembering his offering of himself on the cross for us, that huge sacrifice he made, we remember as we receive that bread and that wine. And this is why we're so careful not to invent our own versions, replacing bread and wine with crisps and ribena or just having a meal together. We don't want to undermine the fact that we're being taken right back to that moment where Jesus gave bread and wine to the disciples at the Last Supper. The Eucharistic prayer holds these meanings together, leading us to give thanks to God for all that he's done for us, recalling Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and remembering specifically his commands to us. And finally, at the end of the prayers, we have these words, at least these are the words from two of the prayers, but they remind us of the purpose. The purpose of this all is to form us in the likeness of Christ. What an awesome thing to be formed in the likeness of Christ. So the integrity of the the Eucharistic liturgy is important, which is why the church guides us how to celebrate it. The Eucharist declares the overriding unity we share as the body of Christ in this place that sets aside any differences we might hold. It's an essential part, an essential part of our life as disciples to remember all that Jesus did for us and then commit ourselves to sharing our lives with him. He in us and we in him. Very sadly, I think, as Sarah referred to at the beginning of the service, if historians look to define 2023 in years to come, it could be summed up as a year of conflict and division. We've wars and tragic wars and suffering in Ukraine and Israel-Palestine with horrific cruelty. There are highly acrimonious political divisions in America and at home between the parties and even within the parties. Tensions between continents and nations that seem to be continually stretched. And on a more parochial scale, the Church of England, having battled for years over women's ministry, is now divided over how it approaches same-sex relationships. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, berated them for their divisions within their community over the way rich people were treating the poor amongst them when they came together for the Lord's Supper. At the Eucharist, there's no place for divisions and acrimony. There is simply space for love. For God's love to come down to us by the power of the Holy Spirit in the shape of this bread and this wine. Together, united by our shared faith, which overcomes all difference, we meet Jesus as we remember that he died for us, rose again, and lives in us and we in him. And so, in a world riven 
with conflict and division on grand, sc grand scales and on small, we are boldly declaring in this act of worship that it doesn't have to be that way. There is another way that is the way of Christ, who is the Prince of Peace. Amen.